All right, friends, now's the time. If you haven't yet, why don't you grab your Bibles? We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. And we are in this sermon series walking through the entirety of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. It's known in the Bible as the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And we're going not just, you know, quickly through it, nor are we just hitting the highlights. We're going to get out and we're going to walk through this passage, almost like you'd go to a a new city, a new village, a new country, and getting out and taking in all the sights and the sounds, getting a firsthand experience of that area. That's what we want to do in this sermon series, not just uh, kind of from afar looking at what God did back then, but really entering into it and asking the Spirit of God to meet us in the midst of this journey. And so, as we continue on, we're going to Philippians chapter 2, as I said, verse 12. And what I'd like to do, rather than read the whole section, I just want to walk through it. A little different than we've been doing in the past, but uh, we'll just start here in a moment and go verse by verse uh, as we wrap out this second chapter. And you know, just as a reminder, this was a letter that Paul wrote inspired by the Holy Spirit to the church in Philippi. And that group of people started when the Apostle Paul and Luke and others were led by the Spirit of God to that Roman colony in Philippi. Remember, uh, in the Roman... Um, kingdom in the Roman Empire, there was roughly 70 million citizens in that entire empire. It stretched as far north as England, as far south as Morocco, as far east as modern-day Iraq. And yet uh, Philippi, which was this bustling metropolis, a lot of industry, a lot of wealth, a lot of people from all walks of life, a lot of worldviews, a lot of ethnicities had come to, to Philippi. When Paul and his companions arrive in Philippi, this is recorded in the book of Acts. This is how we started the sermon series over a month ago. Uh, they find that there is no synagogue and no men believing in God as the maker of heaven and earth. But it was a group of women down by the river, including Lydia, this uh, wealthy businesswoman from Asia who was a worshiper of God. That meant she believed in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so she was the first person that met Paul and the apostles and said that the Lord opened up her heart. She gave her life to Christ. She was baptized. She was the first convert, the first follower of Jesus in the city of Philippi. And then the next person was a down and out young lady oppressed by evil spirits. She was set free from that demonic oppression she came to Christ. She was baptized. It's the second follower of Jesus in Philippi. And the third was a jailer. Paul and the apostles had been thrown into jail. They were beaten, bloodied, uh, left for dead, uh, clothes taken off. I mean, just an awful experience. And they were worshiping God. And miraculously, God set them free. The jailer was about to take his life. Paul stopped him from doing that. And out of the compassion and love that they extended, the Lord opened up his heart. He gave his life to Christ. He and his whole household were baptized. The first three people, the most unlikely people you might think, were the people that God was going after. And that community grew and grew and grew. And Paul is writing this, this love letter to them. There's no sense at all at any point in this letter that, that he's trying to correct bad theology or bad behavior. It's all about joy. It's all about encouragement. And as we've been discovering every single week, it's all about Jesus. 
And not only is that true for Paul, that's true for us as a church. If you ever have questions about who we are, what we're all about, we are all about Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Scripture says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. And through Jesus, we can experience a right relationship with God. Through Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, He becomes the direction of our life that redefines the details of our life and becomes the destination of every moment of every day as we long to encounter Jesus, no matter what circumstances, no matter what details there are in life. And we get to verse 12, and it says, therefore. Now, I was told in seminary, this is something that many pastors say, whenever uh, the word therefore is found in Scripture, you've got to ask yourself the question, well, what's it there for? You've got to understand that there has been something said prior to it that then leads to Paul's next statement, his next thought. When Paul wrote the letter to the church in Philippi, there was no verses and no chapters. We added that centuries later so that we could refer to where something is in this letter. But originally it was just, it was a document that was read out loud to the early church. And it comes in this section of verse 12, as we would refer to it in Philippians 2, just after what is referred to as the Christ hymn. Many scholars believe that the Christ hymn, the section just before verse 12, was the first hymn, the first worship song of the early church. It was an oldie and a goodie, and it was all about Jesus. And it was about how Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. It was born in human form, and he and he went so far to empty himself and to be a servant that he went even to the point of death on a cross. And then it says in verse 9, and this was the whole sermon that Pastor Kim gave us last week. And for greater detail after this service, you can go to YouTube, search for Beller Church and look for that sermon from last week. But she unpacked for us this Christ hymn. And it says that because Christ was obedient even to the point of death, on a cross, in verse 9, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus every tongue should confess, every knee should bow, to know that Jesus is Lord, that he is exalted over all things. Therefore, Paul says in verse 12, my beloved, as I've been saying in previous sermons, how beautiful that the Apostle Paul refers to the believers in Philippi as beloved it's not just friends. It's not just you people. Uh, he doesn't even say anything other than, my beloved. He says this. And this next, this next thought, this next verse, this next truth can, can so easily be misunderstood. So let me read it and then we'll unpack it. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I remember the first time, I literally, I can remember the first time that I heard this passage. And I, I, to, to be honestly, I did not, I didn't like it at all. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? First of all, I went to the fear and trembling part. And at that point, as a young uh, boy in my life, I don't know how old I was, I, you know, I had this kind of like I was afraid of God that I was needing to look over my shoulder to make sure I wasn't doing the wrong thing. And I had this idea 
somehow it popped into my mind. Who knows how it originated, but I had this idea that God was constantly looking down upon me with this, this frown, this scowl, this, this unapproving, just, you know, arms crossed look. And so when I heard that verse, fear and trembling, I thought, well, it's right there in the Bible. In fact, I do so many pastoral counseling visits and conversations with people in person, via Zoom, over the phone, via email. And many, many people uh, have such wounds and such issues because they have this, what I would now describe, as I come to understand what this passage means, they have what I used to have, a misunderstood, a misguided, a distorted understanding of who God is, of how God views us, and a distorted definition of what fear and trembling meant to the Apostle Paul when he wrote this. Now, fear and trembling for the Apostle Paul didn't mean to be terrified, to be insecure, uh, to hide. In fact, that whole perspective is something that God's enemy wants us to have. Rather, the Apostle Paul is saying, we'll work way backwards, that there is a sense of awesomeness, of humility, of reverence, of I am in the presence of something greater. And because of that, it reorients everything for me. It, it, it makes me completely present. I can't phone this in. I can't go through the motions. I have to be all in right here, right now. Paul's saying, don't be afraid of God, but be an awesome wonder of God. It reminds me, maybe five years ago, I was with my my dad and my son, three generations, uh, we were doing a road trip from uh, Salt Lake City area back to Los Angeles, and we drove through and spent the night in Zion National Park. And we got up really early the next day, and we, we drove up this road and just were overwhelmed at, you know, the sights of the Red Rock. There was this moment where we drove literally through a tunnel that had been carved out about a century ago through the rock. And, and even though I was filled with, with just like wonder and though I was filled with appreciation, it still wasn't to the level of fear and trembling that Paul is talking about. But as we made our way up, and though I was taking it in, I was still a little distracted and, you know, talking to my son, talking to my dad and, you know, thinking about uh, what I had to get done when I got back home. I was thinking about the trip so far, but I was, I was, I was taking it in. I was appreciating it. But then we, we got through. We finally made it to the spot. We parked. It was before sunrise and we got out of the car and I've got my three-year-old son and my dad and we begin to hike up this trail. And we get to this one section uh, that I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, is, is this the right trail? Is this, is this where I'm supposed to be? Because this trail seems to be a little narrow and that's a long drop off and there's no rail. And so, you know, in that moment, I, I had to make a decision. Should we turn back? Should we go forward? We're looking at the map and we realize, okay, this is, this is, this is the right place. Then we see another family and they, and they make it through and they make it look easy and it reorients my perspective. Even in that moment, I... I had a little bit more fear and trembling, a little bit more awesome respect, but still there was a part of me that, that even as I picked up my son and crossed over, uh, I, wasn't, 
I wasn't completely present. I, I, my thoughts were still kind of, I was, I was yelling ahead to my dad and he had gone before me and, and we made our way through. But then we finally got to our destination. It's about a mile in and I can't describe it any other way than when I got to this spot and I can just, I can feel it in my body right now what I felt back then, and though it's been so many years. As I got close to this edge of this gigantic canyon before me with this massive, massive drop in Zion National Park. And even though it had a railing, even though there was a fence there, there was something about it that enabled me in that moment to not be able to think about anything else. I stopped thinking about what I needed to get done when I got home. I, I stopped thinking about anything other than I am in the presence of something that if I stumble, even though there was a railing there, even though there was protection, there was something about it that I just became just an awesome wonder. And I was in that moment just, I have to be fully present for me, for my son, for my dad. And I was in it and I, I could literally feel my whole body just being present. My mind was in the same location as my feet. I wasn't scattered. I was, I was there because I was in the presence of something more than the drive, more than the tunnel, more than that little narrow edge, there was something about that grand vista that I was just completely present and nothing else mattered. And Paul is saying, that is the beginning of the tip of the iceberg of a heart's and a mind's perspective that we can have in the presence of God. That the maker of that canyon, the maker of all things, the maker of you is infinitely grander infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more wondrous, infinitely more powerful than anything that we could ever face or imagine. And that God, if we properly understand God's holiness and magnificence, if we properly understand our brokenness, our selfishness, our humanness, our fallibility, our inconsistencies, then we should stand in reverent awe, awestruck wonder, to imagine that the breath in our lungs, the beating of our heart, the ability for the neurons and neural pathways to work in their proper way is something that has all been created and sustained by God. Puts us in a right place of humility, of respect. And remember, Paul is saying that this perspective comes out of a therefore. We cannot, you know, magically just manifest that respect in our heart, in our mind. Paul says, Christ has done something. Christ has enabled something and it unlocks something in you when you receive Jesus by faith that now the Spirit of God dwells in you and it's God who is at work in you. It is a transformation that happens. Initially, God from the outside coming in, but now on the inside transforming you more and more into the image of Christ that when you have the same mind as Christ, as it says in Philippians 2, which is what Kim preached on last week, 
which isn't imitating Jesus or trying to think about what he would be thinking or reading his mind. No, it's literally the Holy Spirit giving you Christ's mind. And it gives you a proper perspective. Though we might not be able to see God like we see the room around us, there is this sense of awesomeness and respect. And Paul says, again, repeat, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence. He says, even though I'm physically away from you, God is with you. And just because I'm physically away from you, don't forget who is with you every moment of every day, even when no physical human being is near you. It is God who is with you. Don't let this be a relationship with God that just because I'm away, that it's an out of sight, out of mind sort of thing. Boy, what a great reminder for us today. You know, there's a lot of life that happens in between our church services. There's a lot of life that happens in between when we perhaps gather in our life groups. There's a lot of life that happens in between when we are around other Christians. And the Apostle Paul says, don't let this following of Jesus be in only a Sunday for an hour sort of thing, or just when you're around other Christians sort of thing. Even when you're physically away from the Christians, you have an opportunity to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Because I got to tell you, it wasn't just the fear and trembling part. It was also the, the work out your salvation part of it. That when I first heard it as a young person, I, I didn't like it at all. You know, I struggled at that time for many, many years, up until I was 19, that I thought that the only way I could not be afraid, the only way I wouldn't tremble in God's presence was if I did enough. If I measured up, if you would have asked me as a teenager, you know, what does it take to get into heaven? I would say, well, you got to do more good things than bad things. And God's the definer of good things and bad things. And so if you do more good things than bad things, then one day at the end of your life, I guess you'll be at the pearly gates. I think what Peter's going to be there, you know, and maybe there's going to be like a, a book that, that somehow reveals my life's record. And so if there's a scale, you got to have more weight on the good than the bad. That's how you get in heaven. That's what I believed up until I was 19. So when I first heard this passage during that era, I thought, well, there's a passage that supports that view. You got to work. You got to work. You got to work. I got to work for your salvation. But I misheard it. You see, Paul says you've got to work out your salvation. And I heard it for the first time that you've got to work for your salvation. And somehow in my, my worldview, the paradigm that I had that wasn't biblical, it wasn't grounded in God's word, it wasn't from God's heart, the paradigm that I have was a distorted view of Christianity that thought that I had to work for my salvation. Paul says, let's be crystal clear. Salvation comes through faith alone. It is a gift from God so that no person can boast. We don't work for our salvation. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you could avoid doing that enables you to earn salvation. There's nothing that you or I could ever do or avoid doing that enables us to be in right relationship to God. Christ has done it all. Christ has paid it all. And when we receive him by faith, scripture says that you are forever saved from the penalty of sin. 
You receive that by grace. I love the acronym of G-R-A-C-E that spells grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. God gives you everything. Adoption into God's family at Christ's expense. He gives you the Holy Spirit at Christ's expense. He gives you a new identity at Christ's expense. He makes you a new humanity at Christ's expense. You now have a purpose in life, an eternal reality that you can experience now, all of it at Christ's expense. And Paul is saying it's not something that we work for, but we must work it out in our lives. It's kind of like if somebody gives you a gift and they're the ones that gave it to you. You didn't pay for it. Maybe it's somebody who gave it to you that isn't even a family member. Maybe it's somebody who gave it to you that isn't even a friend. Maybe it's somebody whom you have considered, even if you didn't know it, an enemy your entire life. And they give you the gift. You don't deserve it. Uh, you haven't given them gifts in the past. And imagine if you got that gift from them, nothing that you did to ever deserve that. Now you've received it. But what if you took that gift and you just, you kind of put it in the garage. You never unwrapped it. You never opened it. You never got, you, you took it out of the box to see what it was. You never experienced it in your life. Have you received that gift? Well, well technically it was given to you, but have you experienced that gift? Has that gift worked its way out in your life to change you, to transform you, to, to enable you to have a firsthand experience of it? You see, Paul says in other parts of his writings in the New Testament that every single human being at birth, and this is strong language, is an enemy of God. When we choose our way rather than God's way, we're, we're God's enemy, but God out of love laid down his life in the form of his son, Jesus, fully God in the flesh, laid down his life, Romans says this, that God demonstrated his love to us in this. He didn't just have loving thoughts, he demonstrates his love through actions. He demonstrated his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, in other words, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So Paul's reminding the Philippians here that Jesus has given you a gift. It's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of being reconciled to God. It's the gift of receiving the Holy Spirit, of having a new identity in Christ. It's the gift of being a new humanity, a new people set apart for, for God's purposes in this world to advance the kingdom of God. That gift has been given to you. Now what are you going to do with it? Are you going to unwrap it? Are you going to open it up? Are you going to allow it to be experienced in your life? That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying you've been set free from the penalty of sin. Now work that out in your life. Let that work in and through your life. Because the salvation work that Jesus does isn't just a saving from the penalty of sin. It's an ongoing saving from the power of sin in your life. You've heard me say this before. I referenced it two weeks ago in the sermon. Uh, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, gosh, there's things that I want to do, I don't do. And there's things that I don't want to do that I still do. There's this, this war within me. Who will save me from this body of death? And you might say, well, what do you mean, say, Paul, are you not saved? Ah, he is saved from the penalty of sin. Christ died once and for all. 
We're now dead to sin and alive in Christ, but sin still has power over Paul, over you, over me. And there's this opportunity, there's this invitation. That's why we as a church, we talk about following Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone because we know that Jesus isn't just a fire insurance policy. Jesus isn't someone that you just receive in your life so that you can get out of eternal judgment. No, Jesus is a living Lord and a living Savior and the living King of Kings and the living Prince of Peace who longs for you to experience in every moment of every day, as we talked about two weeks ago, in all the details of your life to be the direction of your life, the Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, the, the centerpiece of which your life orbits around. And Paul is longing, pleading, commanding the Philippians and us today that you would, that we would, that I would work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To work it out means that it's already in you. You're not working for it to get it in. Christ has given it to you as a gift. Now work it out, experience it. But listen to this. Verse 13, as a kid, whoever was reading that passage stopped right there. They didn't finish the sentence. This is key. This is the second half of it. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here's what's absolutely remarkable. Paul says, you got to work out your salvation. That's what you're called to do. Well, how are you called to do it? Not in your own strength, not on your own willpower, not in your own might. How you do it is God in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you can work out your salvation knowing that it is ultimately God in you who gives you the willpower to do it and who enables you working in you to work it out. It, it becomes this, this beautiful, holy, transformative, sanctifying process that the more you ask God, God, give me the will to want to follow you. I pray that you would give me the strength to follow you. I believe, but even help me in some of my unbelief, as it's said in Scripture. Work in me so you can work out the salvation. It becomes this joyous dance in your life. That as you open up God's word, it is not you and your own strength mustering up the willpower and the strength to work it out. But it's Christ in you transforming your thoughts, transforming your actions, changing the things that you value. If you've been following Jesus sincerely, you know what I'm talking about. And yet there's some listening right now that have yet to say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yet to put their faith and trust in him. Well, I want you to know that the moment you do that, Christ makes Christ's home in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. As it says in Philippians 1.6, that I'm confident that the God who begins a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said to them, and the Spirit of God saying to us, we've been given this gift of salvation. Even when we're not around other believers, we have an opportunity to work that salvation, truth, and reality out with awesome wonder, with respect, knowing that it's God in us that gives us the willpower and works it in through us. But then he goes on. He says this, 
Verse 14, do all things without murmuring and arguing. Let's pause right there. This is impossible. I've tried in my own strength. I've tried to measure up. I've tried to chin up to do all things, not just some things, not just these, to do all things without murmuring or complaining. It's impossible. We've got to remember what Paul just said. That the only way you can do all things without murmuring, without complaining, is if Christ is magnified through you. The Christ who was on the cross experiencing the suffering and the shame of all that he experienced on the cross, I can't wrap my mind around it. There's, there's the physical pain, but there's the spiritual experience of being separated from God because he took upon himself all the sins of humanity. When he was up there, he wasn't complaining. He was honest. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he took our place, separated from God because of the penalty of that. But he wasn't on the cross complaining, whimpering. He chose out of love to give his life. He was crucified. He was buried. And yet he defeated death and rose from the grave through the power of the Spirit. And the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave now dwells in you. So if you find yourself reading something, you know, in the news that you're you normally would complain about. Maybe somebody says something that you know on social media that normally you would complain about. Maybe a circumstance happens in your life that normally you would complain about, that you would murmur. Maybe that's your heart's natural reaction. That's normal. That's natural. That's, that's what it means for us to be human. But there is this opportunity for Christ dwelling in you to be louder than the murmuring, to be louder than the complaining, as Paul opened up his life, he says it's, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, to live as Christ, to die as gain, that it's possible that when God begins to work in and through you, you become transformed from the inside out and you will find over time that the things you used to complain about, the things that you were impatient about, the traffic, the long lines, the, the food that came, you know, delivered by the, the waiter or waitress that you just, you know, yeah, I didn't order it this way. You have a new perspective. And when the person comes to you and brings the wrong food, rather than lashing out at them, you see them as somebody made in the image of God. Who is somebody that God has appointed you, you, to meet with just for a moment. That you have an opportunity to be a witness to God's love. You have an opportunity. When all other customers might act one way when they make a mistake or deliver somebody else's mistake, you have an opportunity to extend grace. To still share, but in a loving way, your preference, but in a way that causes them to say, what's different about you? That you would see them as a soul, that you would see them as a person. When the person cuts you off, rather than waving a finger at them, that you would pray. That you would extend yourself in that moment to say, God, whatever they're going through, would you give them peace? Would you enable them, whatever they're going through, to find you in the midst of it? You see, when you allow God to work in and through you, supernatural things happen. It is unnatural. It is not possible to do all things without murmuring and complaining unless it is God, the maker of heaven and earth through the power of the Spirit, working in and through you. When you open up your heart and your mind and you long for that, watch what God will do. 
In verse 15, it says, when these things happen, when you look at Christ and Christ in you, working, transforming, sanctifying you, verse 15 says this, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. I want you to imagine the the imagery that the Apostle Paul is giving. There is a darkness of the sky at night and there is the brightness of the light of stars. And the contrast between those two things is a theme that that runs throughout all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation that uh, to to not pursue God, to not know God, uh, we are darkened in our thinking Uh, that the absence of pursuing God in our light is like wandering blindly through this world, unable to see. But the truth of God, in fact, God's self is light. Christ is the light of the world. And when Christ dwells in you, Paul is saying that your light can now shine forth in the midst of darkness all around There's other places in Scripture that says that as we get closer and closer to Christ's return, uh, the world will get darker and Christ's people, Christ's family, the belovedness of God's body, the body of Christ becomes brighter and brighter. And so when you look out in the world and you see things on the news and you might say, what has the world come to? Be very careful that that darkness, as you might describe it, doesn't pull you into itself like a black hole. But when you allow God to work in and through you, when you have a perspective that Jesus prays for all disciples, that do not be surprised when there are troubles in this world. It's it's a reality. He says, but, but know that I, Jesus, I have overcome the world, that when you see things on the news, When you see things in your friend's life, when you see things in your family's life, when you see things in your own life, you will know and you will trust. And this is Christ in you. This is the Spirit of God in you. This takes faith. This takes trust. This takes pursuing a relationship with God to have this perspective. But you will see, God, ultimately in the end, you are victorious. And you are choosing in this time to draw people close to yourself. And so therefore, I, in this moment, I'm not going to get pulled into the darkness. Uh, I'm not going to retaliate tit for tat. I'm I'm not going to go eye for an eye. Uh, I'm not going to play the world's games and the world's rules and the world's way, but I'm going to be a shining light. And we can't do that on our own. It has to be Christ, the light of the world, in and through us. Now, to mix metaphors here, this is where the image of the moon is so helpful. You know, the moon doesn't radiate light on its own, right? It it doesn't have wattage uh, that somehow is generated from within itself. But rather, the surface of the moon uh, shines so much light that we can actually, on a full moon sort of night, we can actually see things around us. We can, we can recognize people because of the light from the moon. We can, we can hike. We can ride bikes. We can, you know, as a younger person, I used to surf at night on full moons because you could see everything. But again, the light doesn't come from the moon. It comes from what it reflects. What does it reflect? It reflects the light of the sun, a star. 
And so here we are as human beings, as followers of Christ, given opportunities to simply face the sun, not the sun in the sky, the son of God, who is the light of the world that radiates off of us. But what's also interesting here, he says, not just moons, but you shine like stars in the universe. Not as stars, but like stars. There is this truth that Christ isn't just outside of you radiating God's love and God's light and God's glory. But at the same time, Christ is dwelling in you. And there's this sense that the light of Christ shines forth from you. This image is what the world is longing for. You have an opportunity in your places of work, in your families, where you attend school, in your neighborhoods, to shine like stars in the world. There's a lot of people who will either come to Christ or be turned away from Christ based upon how followers of Christ allow themselves to be used for God's glory. We're going to get to a section right here where Paul says uh, there are certain followers of Jesus that allow it to be all about Jesus. And it's for his sake, for his renown, for his glory. And when it's all about him, then it's him that shines through us. But there's other followers of Jesus that, that it's not about Jesus, it's about themselves. And they can, they can kind of distort the message of Jesus. They don't help in a dark world. This is what he says. Take a look at verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But all of them, he's talking about other people, all of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. You see, you can say yes to Jesus, you can be saved from the penalty of sin, but if you choose not to work out your salvation, to live it out in your life, to be transformed through the power of the Spirit, you can still be a selfish follower of Christ. You can still be a prideful follower of Christ. You're saved, you're gonna spend eternity with God in heaven, and yet there is this season while you are here on earth that you are missing out on of being used by God to draw other people to Jesus. And he says, we've got to be very careful to be people that are transformed by Jesus to draw more people to Jesus. Timothy's one of them. Well, how do we do that? Well, let's rewind a little bit and go back. He says this. This is verse 16. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a libation of the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice in you. He says, this is how you work out your salvation. You hold on to something. You hold on to the word of life. He's saying that this, these words are the word of life. But for them to be alive... They have to be so much more than just ink on a parchment, printed text on paper, pixels on a digital Bible screen. For them to be the word of life, they have to point to something that is alive. Well, the word of life, the word of God, the written word of God points to the living word that is Jesus. When he says you've got to 
Hold on to the word of life. He's talking about you've got to hold on to Jesus. And you don't hold on to him just conceptually or just with your emotions. No, you hold on to and you are held by, you are captivated by every word that he says. In fact, Jesus says that all of scripture points to him. And there's a way in which through the power of the spirit that as we come to God's word, that we can cultivate that relationship, that we can spend time in prayer saying, God, would you, would you transform my values and my desires, the focus of my life to be the things that you long for me to have? Paul says when we hold on to that tighter than anything else, that's how that salvation reality gets experienced and worked out in your life. And then you begin to shine in this world that is getting darker and darker. So yes, you receive by faith Jesus. It starts something in you, but then you get to participate through the power of the Spirit. It's God willing through you and working through you that you get to partner with God in working out your salvation with awestruck wonder. And that's what we want to be a church all about. We want to come alongside you in your faith journey. We want you to know, as we know in ourselves, that there are times in which we, we have questions in which we need help, in which sin still has power over us. And we're so thankful that we have a God that continues to woo us, that continues to forgive us in Christ, that continues to invite us closer and closer in, that God didn't abandon us back then and he's surely not going to abandon us now, so that we get to be a community that on one hand is filled with humility, but also eager expectation how we might be transformed through the power of the Spirit. There's a worship song that we've been singing as a church, and I love this, that says this, that your love meets me where I am. Meets me where I am. We don't have to work our way to be met by God. We don't have to clean ourselves up to be met by God, but it's God's love that, that meets us and meets me where I am. But also, it says that your love is so good it doesn't leave me where I am. That God's love longs to not only meet us where we are, but to transform us, to become that which we have no idea is our best selves. That which Christ longs for us to experience, the life to the full that he promises. This isn't a work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is a Work out your salvation. Experience it with awesome wonder. Knowing that it's God who is doing that in you. Giving you the willpower for it. Working through you. Enabling you to be a shining star. Through the power of the Spirit of God. Jesus, the light of the world. That's what I long for for our church family. For you as a guest. Let's say yes to Jesus, not only today, but even this week when we're apart, working it out with awestruck wonder. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you love us so much that not only have you laid down your life for us, but you have defeated death and rose from the grave to give us your spirit. And so on one hand, we are saved by grace. It's also a grace that gives us the strength to follow you 
So we receive it as a gift, but we also want to do something with it. We want to work it out in your, our lives. We want, to, we want to unwrap it. We want to understand it. We want to share it with others. Holy Spirit, give us the willpower for that. Work that out through us so that we can be like the first century church, a church at work, God's work in and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray and we say together, amen.